Welcome to the Inside Data Center podcast. I'm Andy Davis, and in this podcast, I will interview the people working in the data center sector and tell their stories. If you are working in the DC sector or you are looking to work in the sector, then this is the podcast for you. Welcome to the Inside Data Center podcast. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Mike Tobin, OBE. Good morning, Mike. Good morning. How are you? I'm very well, thanks. Yourself? Yeah, good. Thanks, Andy. Good. Good. Great to have you on today. Obviously, as we were just saying offline, I've just finished your book, Lifting the Floor. So I hope prime opportunity to have a, have a chat about that, but also to find out a bit more about your career and, and a bit about how you're sort of perceiving the data center industry at the moment. Yeah. Do you want to just give everyone a quick introduction of, of who you are in case anybody's not aware? Um, well, yes. Um, so I've been in the data center industry for a, for probably two decades now, um, a little over two decades. So uh, um, started when it was very nascent um, and uh, with with Redbus, um, which was a, a, a you know a name from the past um, and colourful. Um, built Telecity through through the two uh, thousands and um, up to sort of two thousand fourteen, and sold it to Equinix. Um, I'm now chairman of EdgeConnex in in what's global um, hyperscale player and. Um, I chair Paulson in the UK, so I'm serial kind of non-exec and um, investor, a little bit of authoring, uh, some philanthropy. So yeah, keep myself busy. So a man of many hats. Yeah, I've got many, many hats. Yeah. <laughs> Today's hat is, is podcast <laughs> this morning. Um, I always start at the beginning because I think it gives a good idea of how people enter the industry. Um, and obviously, you know, reading your book, understand that you, you didn't follow the university route into sector, which I think is a really good point to get across. So just want to explain how you first started in data centers. Yeah, I mean, I, so, so I, I'd had a um, quite a challenging um, childhood, uh, born in the East End uh, to a very violent father. Um, my mother sort of escaped to Africa when I was very young. And, um, and then we sort of went from frying pan into fire and, and got petrol bombed and shot out, out there, but managed to get back to the UK when I was about 12. And um, and and we lived in a squat in Stockwell um, for a couple of years and sold um, pianos um, down the market uh, that we found in um, condemned houses. So, you know, it, was, it wasn't the ideal start to a data center career, but um, what it meant was at 16, I left school, um, you know, just wanted to, to get out and start earning, um, did an apprenticeship in electrical electronic engineering. And that was great. I, you know, even though I was earning 30 pound a week, um, uh, it, it was the, probably the best start I could have had. Um, and then traveled around Europe, um, building businesses primarily for us companies. And then, and then back in sort of 2000, um, 2001, when the, the, the dot-com bubble burst, I thought, well, it's probably best to get back to the UK. I had a very young family at the time. Um, so I thought I could hunker down in the UK and see what I could find. Probably easy. I was living in Frankfurt at the time. Um, it was probably easier to, to sort of find things to do in the UK. And so I came back and uh, joined Redbus. Didn't know what a data center was. Um, and, you know, we, we went in there and... and uh, well, the rest is history, I guess, but it was a tough old time, um, I, which I go into, I guess, in the book, Lifting the Floor, um, into, into some detail. But but it, back in those days, you know, the data centers were not really needed yet, and people didn't understand how they were going to be needed in the future. 
Um, you know, and, and I remember playing five-a-side football in, in one of the data, data halls in Canary Wharf in, uh, in Docklands um, because there was nothing else going on in them. So uh, we, we had a kickabout in there. So, um, you know, it was a very different world. But, of course, it was just the concept that was slightly ahead of its time. Um, and, and like all things in technology, it's very hard to uninvent them when they're invented. And, and we tend to over uh, overestimate any uptakes in technology in a sort of a five-year period, but probably massively underestimate them in a 15-year period. So, you know, very quickly in sort of 2004, five, six, seven, the industry sort of made its own name. And, and now it's, you know, it's been incredibly resilient through COVID. Um, you know, people have, uh, you know, have, have more demand for, for, for the internet and therefore, for data centers than ever before. And, and I can't see any sort of change in that dynamic. I see it as a as an ongoing ongoing value you know, to, to society and also a fantastic industry. Definitely. And you, you mentioned that you didn't know what a data center was when you joined Redbus. So what was it that attracted you to the industry at yeah, that point? It was a bloody job, wasn't it? I mean, you know, I was coming back from, from you know, in the middle of the dot-com bubble bursting and, and um, you know, I, coming back from Europe and I thought I had a... I had a I had a two-year-old and a one-week-old, and it was a job. And I had two guys, there was Cliff Stanford and, and John Porter, who were the two larger-than-life characters in, in Red Bus. And they, you know, they, they sold it, and it, was, it sounded brilliant. I didn't know what it was, but yeah, I thought, well, yeah, I'm in. I didn't realize that the, you know, Red Bus was basically bankrupt, and, um, and I was going to be used as a, as, a, as a kind of a fall guy for the, for the fact that the, this business that had just raised um, you know, hundreds of millions on the stock market had just spent it all and was about to go bankrupt. But we managed to survive. So, it's Not the sort of thing they're going to tell you in an interview, that, is it? <laughs> yeah, it's not. It's not. <laughs> would, you, would you like to work for us? Um, these are the problems. Yeah, by the way, we've got no money left. <laughs> yeah, might have made a different career choice at that point. <laughs> just quickly on career as well. Obviously, you had a you know, very, very successful career. What would you say your main learnings were along the way? Surround yourself with the best people you can possibly get at any given time. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I say, as you, as you had mentioned earlier on, I didn't go to university and, and, um, you know, I, I want the best, um, financial guy. I want the best commercial guy. I want the best marketer. I want the best, the best people around me I can possibly pay for at any given time and, um, impart the vision and then let them run with it. Um, and don't try and manage anyone, um, you know, inspire uh, and, and, and let them, let them sort of lead themselves. And I guess the, the second thing is, you know, the, the second sort of learning is that success is, isn't permanent and failure isn't fatal. Um, and, uh, you know, I think, I think that the, as Darwin would probably say, you know, it's not necessarily the fastest or the biggest or the strongest or the fattest or the, or that survive. It's the, it's the most resilient. It's the most adaptable. And I think, you know, in the, in the technology industry more than anything else, um, you know, the rate of change in the, tech, in the industry is so great that you need to have a flexible and adaptable uh, approach to life. Otherwise, you'll die. And so, you know, that's a, that's a great lesson. Yeah, and that brings you on to a question I was going to ask later, but I listened to another podcast you did a while back where you mentioned that people should focus on, the skill, on their skill set rather than on the career path or the job role I think it was some advice you'd given to your daughter a couple of years ago but <laughs> I, that really that really resonated with me though because I think that's a massive point in any industry but particularly in data centers because a lot of the time my clients are looking for that needle in a haystack 
they're looking for someone that's doing that job role in a similar colo provider or cloud provider or whatever it is. And there's only a few of them, but there's probably a lot of people with the skills that they need in other industries. Well, I think that's right. The, the other thing about it, right, is, uh, you know, if, if you if you if you try to if you want to, if you want someone to do a specific job and you go out and find someone that's doing that specific job, why would they move to you? Right. If you know, either they're ambitionless because they don't want to learn anything else, right? Or they just want more money, in which case, you know, they're going to move to the next person again very quickly who's going to pay, you know, X, X amount more. But if you've got someone that says, you know, I'd love to learn how to do that. And 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 I always I always looked for um attitude rather than aptitude, right? When I was recruiting people. I, and I'd I'd rather someone that had a fantastic attitude to an approach to the to 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 work and a great work ethic that didn't have skills, right? Because I could teach him skills, but teaching an attitude is very difficult, right? So 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 bringing people around you that's like these are really, really good people. And we don't even know necessarily what their job title is going to be because maybe it hasn't even invent, been invented yet. But just bring them in, you know, create a kind of a, a cauldron of, of, of innovation, a cauldron of energy. And so, so I think, you know, if, if, you've got, if you've got someone that's kind of been particularly good at, um, you know, project management, well, you know, project like I, like I mentioned in the book, you know, I, I recruited someone um, who actually is my my CEO at, uh, at at Paulson at the moment. Rob Coupland, um, he's, he's been head of EMEA for 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 digital realty and the whole thing, and I recruited him as a project manager. And the, but the first job I gave him was to to project manage our IPO, right? And so you know, he'd go like, "What the hell? I've never done what's, what's <laughs> an IPO?" Yeah, exactly. So, but but the point is, you, you know, everything can you know everything can be better delivered with project with good project management so the skill set was what i was looking for rather than the actual fitting into us into a box or, 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 or you know plugging the pin in to the right hole sort of thing no and i think that's really important as well especially when you talk about a skill shortage in the industry you, know, you can't find people doing the same job all the time it's impossible okay. and another another point that you know see people like yourself and ceos always say to me is that you know we're open we want fresh ideas we want new ideas and you can only get new ideas from outside the industry because as you just said most people are in that role doing the same thing just in a different company in a different environment yeah and i, and I think you know in, in our industry as well it's even more important because as i said you know it's only a 20 year old industry Right. And, and so and, 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 you know, I do a lot in developing markets as well. Right. So, you know, when you go to Africa and places like that, there is nobody. There's nobody. Yeah, exactly. So, so you know, what do you do? Do you just give up? Of course you don't. So you take people and, and you know, we, we, we worked with Terraco for years with fantastic business in South Africa. And that's grown enormously. Right. And, and that's with people that started from zero knowledge. So, you know, I, I don't buy it that you have to have someone that's traditional, you know, that, that you has got like 10 years experience in doing something. Just have people that have the right attitude, right? And, and are willing to, you know, to be self-motivated, to, to collaborate, to, to be innovative. And, and also you've got to create an environment uh, of fearlessness, right? And I, and, I, and I think this is, I talk about this in my first book, Forget Strategy, Get Results, but it's, it's, it's about creating an, a fearless environment. So, if if you're if you're looking to push the envelope at all in all cases, then clearly you're you're not going to get it right every time. So you need to have an environment where people are allowed to fail, 
without concept, you know, without kind of re- negative repercussion. It should be a positive repercussion. You know, you should be saying to people, great, we've just learned how not to do something. You know, and if you can get that environment, then people will be doing innovative things all over the place. You don't want people to just keep doing getting it wrong and doing the same thing again, because that's not learning, right? So, but but if, if they're getting it wrong and saying, okay, I've now eliminated that as an option, then actually that is exactly what you want because you're homing in on the correct solution. And, and when there's no rule book to follow, you're writing the rule book. You need people with that fearless attitude, right? To be able to, to, be able to take you ahead of the pack. Yeah, no, definitely. I totally agree. And it brings you on quite well to the book, actually. I know we've touched on the book quite a lot, but as I was saying earlier, I've just read the book. I think it's a brilliant read and I recommend anybody to read it that's in the industry. You know, lifting the floor, it's cool. You find it on all good bookshops. <laughs> but it does give you a great insight into what it's actually like in, in the boardroom, so to speak, and, yeah. and how the industry evolved during that period and the changes that have taken place. But a few of the points I picked up on that I just wanted to kind of get your opinion on, really. Obviously, you touched on Red Bus earlier, which was, you know, a challenging time, shall we say, for you during that period. And the main point I picked up on it was that you didn't give up. You know, you, you could have easily thrown the to- thrown your toys out the pram and, and walked out the door, I think. So I just wanted to know what it was that kept you motivated and kept you pushing through the challenges. So so I think I think there's a couple of things there. First of all, you know, my 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 early life you know, as I say, being petrol bombed and shot at kind of sets a, a relativity bar. Yeah, <laughs> you know, exactly. So, so, you know, boardroom bust ups are kind of, they're not fun, but they're, you know, you're not going to get shot, right? So, so well, you might. It's <laughs> unlikely. <laughs> I tell you, with those characters, there, there probably was a risk, but, um, but, but that, that's, I guess, one thing. So, you know, and, and I try to install in, so I took I took my team again. I talk about this one in the first book. I took my team um, diving with sharks, swimming with sharks, early on in the red bus time because they were all worried about kind of merging with red bus and Telecity was coming together, and and they were going, oh, this means consolidation. This means jobs job cuts. So I, without telling them in advance, I took them up to the Firth of Forth, and and we we swam with sharks up there, and and um, once no nets, no cages, and and. When they realized what they were actually doing, once they put the wetsuits on and, and actually getting in the water, they could see the fins floating around on the surface in front of them. They were absolutely crapping themselves, right? And, and, but, but then, you know, having gone down to the surface and these things were literally within a foot of you and then, and then coming out again and you're still alive, then you sort of, you, you say to them, well, how did you feel when you thought about what you were going into? And they said, oh, I hated you. I couldn't believe I was doing this. I really wished I was somewhere else, you know. And I said, okay, how did you feel when you were actually doing it? And they said, well, it was, it was still scary, but it was kind of exciting, you know, cause you're doing something, you know, unusual out of your comfort zone. So, you know, you're learning. And then, and then I said, well, how did you feel when you came out? And they said, oh, I don't want to do it again, but it, you know, it's a life changing experience. It's something I can tell my kids. It's, it's stories, you know, it's, it's, I learned. So I said, well, whenever you're sort of, a, you're, you're presented with something that, you know, you, you would you would be fearful of, or you felt was a massive challenge, then then you know you know that there will be an end to it. You know that you come out the other side. So so go through it with a kind of a, a learning hat on, and and a, and a fearless hat. So so you you get the you get the most out of it. And I think if you can if you can apply that to life, then you know n- nothing appears a challenge. Everything appears an opportunity. Yeah, I think I, I read a book. I think it was 
um, randomly, and Middleton, <laughs> and he talked the SAS, XSAS, and he yeah. talks about the fear bubble. I don't know if you've read it, but how yeah. you know when he was in when he was in the armed forces and SAS, and he was kicking down a door for uh, you know in Afghanistan and didn't know what was behind it. The fear was used as, as energy at yeah. that point. He didn't think about it until he was in it, because if you you only fear something that you're actually before well, you do it. Basically. Yeah, you you don't you don't fear the past. And you don't fear the present because you're actually involved in it. You only fear the future. And, and fear is like, it's like a wasted energy, if you like, because if you, if you think about it, what's happened is, is that it, it's almost like, you know, paying interest on a debt you haven't drawn down. Yeah. <laughs> it's zapping you, but nothing's happened, right? So if there's something you can do to mitigate the thing that you're afraid of, you should do it. And if there's nothing that you can do to mitigate the thing that you're afraid of, then what's the point of being afraid? Just get on and deal with it. So, you know, and in all cases, fear is a is an unnecessary waste of energy. So kind of during that time, you were just seeing the challenge as something you had to deal with, you know, yeah. just That's deal it. with it, move on, next stage. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And it, and it really wasn't pleasant. I mean, you know, I had I had press on my front lawn, at 5 a.m. in the morning, you know, I, it was, I had, I had sexual harassment scandals I was being accused of and, and all these sorts of things. And it was all kind of fabricated to try and to, to basically to, to try and sort of make us give up and leave. And eventually it all came out and we, we won the day. So. I guess that's part of it, isn't it? You, you kind of knew what they were trying to achieve and you did, you wanted to win. Yeah, that's right. That's right. You didn't want them to get what they wanted. And if you had walked out the door at any point, they would have achieved what they, they wanted. Won. They would have won. And, you know, again, as a responsibility to shareholders as a listed company in the beginning there, you know, I, I felt that that they would have just squandered everything. And, the, you know, that in itself was a kind of a, a spur. You know, my job was to make sure that they didn't win. And you were successful. <laughs> A lot of luck, a lot of good people around me. But <laughs> well, I was going to talk about luck actually. That's quite a good link. A good link there. I think in your book you do you do talk about luck a fair bit, and I, I kind of look at it luck in a, a slightly different way. I think you have to put yourself into the position to to get the luck. It's kind of more good fortune, I suppose. And the the main element in the book is the flood in Prague, isn't it? Where yeah. you were at that point where you were thinking maybe I do need to get out of here. And then suddenly you're in that position to get some good luck. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we had 6 million left in the bank and, and um, we were burning 2.4 million a month. Right. And, and <laughs> that you don't could... need to be that good at economics to work that one. <laughs> and, um, and we just opened Prague because we couldn't not open it. I mean, you know, you were so far down the line in the build and we'd spent 48 million on it. Um, so I went out there and, and we opened it because all the press were there and I had the, the, the British ambassador to cut the ribbon and all this sort of stuff. And I, all I could see was another quarter of a million burn because, you know, the, 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 as you know, the great thing about the data center industry is it's got high operational cash flows and everything else. But on day one, when you've got no customers, it's still got that fixed cost base in, impact. So you're yeah. negative until you're positive. Right. So, um, and, and so we, you know, we, I got back on the plane thinking, oh my God, what a nightmare. And, and I felt that the plane was a bit bumpy on its takeoff and stuff. And we were in the middle of a storm, got to London and started seeing the reports of, you know, heavy, heavy rains. And then eventually the flooding a couple of days later of, of the Danube and, <clears throat> and they would say the great floods of Prague. And, and I was, I, I was straight back on a plane, um, and to see the, uh, the insurers. And, and I said, look, you know, we, we 
this is we've got an insurance contract with you for 48 million. You give me give me six, seven million now and I'm out of your hair, but you've got to be now. Um, I think I somewhere between six and eight million. But um, yeah, they, they, we cut that deal in, in 48 hours. And that kept us going for a few more months until I got new investors. But but had it not rained, had the Danube not burst its banks, you know, the data center industry might have been put back by a decade. It's crazy when you think about it, isn't it? A natural event having such an impact. And I certainly wouldn't be doing a podcast talking about data centers, that's for sure. No, neither would I, maybe. <laughs> we, might, we might be doing one talking about something else. We could have met along the way in a different industry. have a fish truck or something, driving around selling, selling, selling cotton chips. <laughs> exactly. And then another point, I, say, I said to you earlier, I interviewed Guy Wilner uh, a while back on this, and obviously he's active in emerging markets. And yeah. after that conversation, I kind of took it that like a lot of what Guy does and people like yourself, it's like educated risk-taking. And I think that's what I titled that episode. And it's, I think people that are entrepreneurial take more risks, but they do it with a lot of research and education behind it. It's, it's rarely is it a, an impulse risk. Do you think it's, you know, that's a key component to be successful as an entrepreneur? Well, I, I'm, you know, being, not being a university graduate or anything like that, you know, I don't, I don't tend to do the, do the paperwork so well. Right. I, I usually kind of hand that over to other people. Let uh, someone else do that. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And that's why you need to trust people, right? You have that, a, a great relationship with, 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 with people. But, but I, I, have, I, do, I do rely on my gut feeling a lot. And so you've, in life, you've got to have a thesis. Um, and especially as an investor, of, and an entrepreneur is kind of an investor in all cases, even if he's not putting money in. Or she's not putting money in because they're they're focused on investing their time and reputation in 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 backing something, um, and and in, uh, almost always it's it's involving money as well. But but the point is that you you're taking risk, right? And so you've got to have a thesis. You've got to have a gut feeling that says why why will this be successful? And you and you can't be dislodged from that thesis by by a simple failure. Right. Because you know, actually, I, I was I was taught how to sell by, Brian, you know, Brian Adams, the you know, summer of 69. And right. Right. So his cousin, a guy called Ian Watson, taught me how to sell back when I was in my 20s. That's another story. Um, but but he he gave me this example of, you know, if you're a, if you're the best, if you're a broom salesman. Right. And, you know, your broom is a really good broom. Right. And, you, and, you know, because you've been selling this broom, it's a family business, you've been selling it for 150 years. So, you know, on average that, you know, in a, in a terraced street, there's 100 houses and, you know, on average that you're going to sell one broom in that 100 houses because you've got all this data behind you and, you know. So, so you kind of go, you go, you start anywhere on the street and you start knocking on the doors. Right. And, and you know that there's going to be 98 of them that, that, that already have a broom. One of them, it doesn't have a broom, but can't afford yours. But one of them doesn't have a broom and can afford yours and is going to buy it, right? So you, wherever you start, you knock on the door and it probably you open up, oh, no thanks, boom, the door shuts behind you. At that point, you shouldn't get demoralized. You should go, yes. Because out I, of the way. <laughs> I've taken a step towards my victory here, right? So, so I'm now closer to my yes than I was before the door got slammed in my face. And so the, the concept of, of kind of, Having having these sort of thesis and believing in in a in a result, right, and taking all the setbacks as parts of the pathway to the result, is yeah. 
think is the is the is the secret seed of a of a of an entrepreneur right it's it you've got to you've got to believe in the thesis before you believe in every separate opportunity within that thesis and then then you can go and say look you know this this is an obvious one it may and and again it may take a year it may take 3 years it may take 5 years and you may run out of money on the way and it would be considered a failure but the thesis applies so that's i think what what the important thing is with with entrepreneurship is is this kind of the co- the combination of having a strong conviction in your in your own beliefs and having the resilience to keep going yeah definitely resilience i think that's clear from most people I speak to that have, have done it or you yeah. know, or in that role, they're all very, very resilient. Um, finally, on the book, I, I just wanted to know what it was like at the point when you left, you know, when it, when it came to an end and, and you, you walked out the door. It must have been quite a strange feeling. It was strange. At Telecity, I'd been there 13 years and, and um, you know, we'd seen it, well, from, from a kind of a penny and three quarters up to, you know, God knows how much you know, I think it was a 6 million market cap to a, to a 3.6 billion, right? So it was a fantastic economic success. And it was a, um, a an amazing learning journey for me. And I built so many wonderful relationships and I'd, I'd, you know, all that was great. And it felt bizarre. I mean, I, I, the one thing is I had to, I had to get, um, I had to hire a moving van, right? Because my office that we built in Canary Wharf we'd built in so many um, uh, cupboards and panels within there because I'd, I'd used it for like, you know, gifts and things like that. that I'd rec- and, and, and there was so much stuff. I had to get a moving van to move out my office. That, that, that was how kind of, you know, bizarre it was to leave. That was, that was how bought in you were. Yeah. And, and, and of course the people, it was, it was like a family. I mean, you know, the whole, ma- the, the management team was around 15 strong, 15, 16 strong. Um, and the bond was was incredible. I mean, you know, we'd we'd, we'd go to events um, with spouses, you know, three four times a year, and and that that bond was incredible. And you know, leave at that point, the perception of leaving that was 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 quite quite bizarre. But of course, you know, we've we, we've kept that bond going, um, and that's why you know Rob runs Pulsant for me. Um, uh, Alex Schles runs North Sea in in uh, in the Netherlands for me. You know, we've got Brad Petzer as the CFO in 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 Polson as well. You know, so it, it's you know it's carried on. It's carried on, and and again, you know, it's trust, and it's people that you kind of know that know how you think. And and you know, I'm I'm not I'm not a brilliant. I, I don't want to be a brilliant manager. I don't want to manage anybody. Right, especially if I've brought this, the best people I can possibly have in that yeah. role. That's why, why you. That's why you employ them, isn't it? Exactly. Yeah. Why would I think I can manage them if they're doing? If if I've brought them in because they're the best people for that role, far better than I am for that role. So why would I? Why would I try to manage them? So so I think you know that's the thing is once you once you learn um, that once you build relationships with quality people, you don't want to let them go. No, and I think that's a key point as well, the difference between leaders and managers. I think it crosses over far too much in all industries. And yeah, yeah. Well, lead- that's ultimately, you know, what, what, what caused the departure from Telecity because I had a, um, a chairman that I brought in for the IPO in 2007, a guy called John Hughes, um, you know, who, who had a, a history of, of becoming executive chairman in pretty much every, every business <laughs> he, he, he was involved in. And um, surprise, surprise, you know, one, you know, 
we ended up having that that um, that dynamic again at Telecity, and and uh, you know he he um, he he struggled with the, the 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 disconnect between sort of executive and non-exec. So in my roles now, um, where I'm I'm kind of non-exec of about ten different businesses around the world, I make sure that I'm especially in the ones where I'm chairman and just simply not a non-exec director. I make sure that I'm very conscious of the fact that I'm not a manager in the business. Yeah. And so I think it's a difficult line for a lot of people though. You obviously do it very well, but I do find that there's a, it's a fine line, I think, between the, the two roles and it's hard to sit one side of the fence or the other. Well, I think, I think one of it is, is the, um, is the emotional angle, right? So people, people like to be the glory guys and, and I, and I fall into that category the same as anyone else does, but but I kind of feel like I've ticked the box now, so I can sit in the background and 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 kind of tag along for the ride in many of these cases, and and just do my sort of wise old head type thing. In fact, I need you know I'm, I'm looking forward to to to, to um, tomorrow where I get my hair cut again because I can dye it again, get all the grey out. Yeah, I've got my hair cut on Friday. Actually. It's big big week in the UK this week, everyone. We're getting we were allowed to get our hair cut. <laughs> died and died, yeah. <laughs> First time in a while. Um, I'm six years old, but I, as long as I keep my hair dyed, I look younger. We see it, exactly. Um, so obviously that's on the book. Now I just wanted to touch on the data center industry, obviously, because mm. that's that's the main topic of the podcast. Obviously, you you worked through what was a transformative time in the sector, you know, the dot-com boom, the, the boom of the data center industry. And and I think we're in another point now where there's a dramatic shift going on in the sector. I just wanted your views on on really how you see the industry evolving and kind of what the future has for the industry. Yeah, I think first of all, I think it's worth saying that it, you know, in a hundred years' time, people will look back at this time in the industry, this this last two decades, as being like the early days of the early days of the railroad in the U.S. I mean, this is, you know, coming from cowboys and Indians style at red bus right into a mat- massively maturing market and if you look at the amount of money that's being deployed in around the globe and the the, the massive increasing data um, and we haven't seen you know we haven't even seen the exponential rise in data that we're going to ex- you know experience over the next decade um, in the in the previous two decades because you've got internet of things are going to become prolific um, big data is becoming more and more important everywhere and i always say that as well you know 5g i think because of the the last 12 months everyone's forgotten that we were already talking before that about these particular challenges and what are we going to do when they happen and yeah. then all you've had is usage go up so quickly in in 12 months yeah. that we've kind of forgotten that all that's to come <laughs> yep no absolutely and 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 i think you know core you know the, the sort of the, the the oil rigs, if you like, or the or the kind of oil refineries, um, if of, of data are the data centers, right? And so all of the you know, and the, and the data is the oil, if you like, right? So it's it's kind of the next generation's oil, uh, and so so I think you know they're only going to become massively more important, right? And and then I think that that the way that we think about deployment of these is going to be different. So first of all, you've got data centers there that are there for repositories of data to store this big data and everything. And, and, and Moore's law helps us to stay remotely in, 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 in touch with the growth of data, right? So, so you know, our ability to, to shrink, um, physically shrink the size of things. So, so, you know, a terabyte 
Um, now fits in the size of a gigabyte three years ago. And so, so that allows us to, to, to keep a handle on the growth. But nevertheless, the growth is still out, outperforming our ability to build these facilities, right? But I think the way that it goes going forward is, okay, you're going to have these massive repositories and you're going to have the hyperscale deployments in more and more locations. So, so the, you know, the Microsofts and the Googles and the AWSs are not just going to be you know, one cluster per country or one cluster per region. They're going to be clusters per, per, per sort of sub-region in a country. Yeah. Um, and then and then also you're going to have what we what we term the edge and no one, even though it, uh, chair edge connects, but it's in the name, but it's not been edge yet. Right. So edge edge is going to be having a, a data center on every street corner. Right. Because driverless cars two driverless cars that are on a head on collision track are not going to send messages to Seattle to say, what should I do here? Can you ask the other one to turn left and I'll turn right? That's got to happen in super low latency dynamics, which is going to be on the street corner where they are. So between there and now, you know, the next thing is, you know, regional. You know, so, yeah, you know, you're definitely, of, I think you're, you're already seeing that, aren't you? Yeah, yeah, massively. Yeah, 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 to, just in the UK. Yeah, instead of London, you're going to have Birmingham, Manchester, Leeds, Edinburgh, Glasgow, Maidenhead, Reading, you know, and then beyond there, you're going to have street corner, right? And then, and then you've got sort of the, the, the sort of the, the massive push to get super fast and hyper fast broadband to everybody in the country, of course. And, you know, the last 5% that BT can't be bothered with, right, goes to this kind of fixed wireless boys. Um, and, and those ones are going to be putting into the hamlets and the, so, you know, a business I have called big blue, which is listed, you know, we have a, a business in Australia that the Australian government has stuck up a, a kind of geostatic satellites above the center of Australia, because they're never going to see a piece of fiber, you know, in the next hundred years, because there's more, there's more sheep than people and everyone lives around the edge of Australia, but nevertheless, they're committed to deploy, infrastructure that says that everyone even if you're on a remote farm 100 miles from anyone will be able to have high-speed broadband and so you know the fact that they're putting that infrastructure in means that the demand is going to be ever more increasing and you know these things just begat each other and there was a there was a great back in the time i i, I tell this story quite a lot because when I talk to um, sort of investors about, you know, but don't you think Moore's law is going to mean that we're going to use less power and, you know, all this sort of stuff. And I go like, come on, you know, it's, it's back in the sort of the, the, the industrial revolution, you know, you had the, the big names of the industry of, of, indu of the industrial re revolution, people like um, Brunel, like Stevenson, you know, and, and they were, they were digging coal mines and, and they weren't digging, people were digging coal mines. And 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 they the people were dying in the mines because there there was this massive demand suddenly for coal, but they weren't safe environments yet, and so all the great and the good of the industry got together, right? And they said, look, how, what we need to do? How do we fix this problem? And they said, what we need to do is we we need to make the most efficient steam engines we can possibly make, and therefore we will use less coal. And of course, that didn't quite work out that way. The more efficient they made the, coal, the steam engines, the more coal was needed and the more demand was created for the coal, right? So, you know, every time we make, you know, we use ARM technology in our, in our smartphones rather than the um, sort of Intel chips because they're super low power. Now we have, to, we have to charge our phones three times a day because we use them so much more than the old Nokia 6310s that we used to have, you know, like five years ago that we could char charge once a, once a week. Right, that did WAP, right? So, so the thing is that, 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 you know, all of these things that we think about in terms of driving efficiency within the industry just begats more consumption.
Yeah, and I guess that's the target of the tech, isn't it? That technology is being invented or created to manage the increase in demand. That's exactly why they're creating it. Absolutely, absolutely. And that was another question I wanted to ask you as well about, obviously, you've got, you know, you're investing in a lot of businesses, as you said, and you must see a lot of technology. I just wondered what technology you think will come in that will really have an impact on the sector? Well, I think, you know, there's this, the way that the industry is is going now that people are talking more and more about how kind of um, encompassed liquid cooling is going to, is going to help. Um, we're not there yet. And, and again, between being there on new builds and retrofitting older is also a, a very long period. And remember what I said at the beginning, we always overestimate the uptake of new technologies in a five-year period and probably underestimate it in a 15-year period. So somewhere in there. Somewhere in the middle. <laughs> you don't want to be bleeding edge on some of this technology, but, you know, leading is, is okay. Um, but, but you know, so liquid-cooled, um, you know, obviously, uh, you know, environmental um, considerations now are coming to the forefront. And, and I'm, a, I'm a great sort of proponent of the fact that Data centers, data centers themselves are not big consumers of, of energy. Okay. The, the customers of data centers are the big consumers of, of energy. And if data centers didn't exist, those customers would be even greater consumers of energy because it will be run inefficiently. So with a data center driving its PUE, the, the, the power usage efficiency down on behalf of its customers, it's inherently an efficient environment. Right. Whereas if the customer didn't have a data center, it'd be running its servers under its desk or, or, you know, some some horrible kind of inefficient way. So so data centers are already a a, a sort of an environmentally positive approach to our consumption of the Internet. But we need to do more. So we need to think about how we how we use excess heat in, in more um, efficient ways, how we draw on, our, you know, green energy rather than, than, than fossil fuels, how we, how we make sure that our, our water consumption is either put to good use or is eliminated completely. And I think these ways you'll see ESG being more and more important to our customer base, and therefore they will be putting more pressure on the industry to come up with referenceable um, success success stories and also um, you know, trackable KPIs that we can we can give to them as part of their ESG story to their end users and to their shareholders. So I think that you know the industry has a duty, but also you know needs to keep up with the the the, the forefront of of um, expectation of the world. And, and I think the, 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 the interesting thing is that up until now, the, the industry has generally been deregulated in all these things and has done a great job in trying to keep ahead of the self-regulation dynamic. So, you know, um, in the UK, there's the sort of the green grid and, and all these sorts of initiatives that have been proactively put out there. And it's generally been because um, people outside the industry haven't really understood um, and so we've been able to keep ahead of the story as an industry and self-regulate. And I think it's important that we continue to do that. Otherwise, someone else that doesn't understand enough about the, the industry will try and regulate us from the outside. Yeah. And, and as it becomes a bigger piece and data centers are now you know, front page news as opposed to page 36 or whatever page you want to pick, it's going to be more emphasis and more input onto that side of it, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. 
Excellent. I could talk to you all day, but I know you're a busy man and I'm sure you've got better things to be doing. But there's one question. Yeah, there's one question I ask everyone on my podcast just before we close up. But if you could give one piece of advice to anyone looking to work in the data center industry, what would it be? So I think, you know, the data center industry has a bunch of skill sets within it. Right. And, you know, there's still finance, there's still marketing, there's still commercial, there's still technical, all these different things. But I think you're in you're in an industry that that sees the most amazing um, technology advancements within it, but is a very stable um, environment of bricks and mortar and big machinery like diesel engines and you know and, and things that probably don't change for 20 years other than kind of get shinier every now and again. So so I think it's a it's an incredible mix of kind of stability and innovation together, right? And taps into all of these new new industries, you know, we used to have people like the iPlayer and all this sort of stuff in there. And, and when, it, when it wasn't even popular, you know, so it, it, it gave you insights into what was coming and, but gave you a very, you know, sort of solid base. And I, and I would say it's a great, it's a great industry for people to get into. And we need, you know, lots of, of, of young people to come through the ranks and build that experience, um, you know, for years working in the sector and in, 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 in data centers, but maybe moving around within them, almost like an apprenticeship style, style of things so that they understand how they come together. But I would give people generally a piece of advice that's not data center specific, um, but is more of an attitude of life. And it was given to me when I, w- when I was 15 and a half and almost about to leave school. And I was sitting on, on a bench in Bond Street tube station. And this was way, way before the internet, right? <laughs> um, and we didn't have email or anything like that. We had, we had letters and I had a letter um, that was about my apprenticeship. And, and, and I was sitting, there was an old man sitting next to me and he, he probably, I'm, I'm sure he's long gone, um, sadly, but, and, and probably couldn't even see what was written on my letter. As I opened it up and I read it and it confirmed that I had a an apprenticeship place at a place called Rockwell Automation, which did industrial robots at the time. And uh, he saw this big beaming smile on my face and he said, and he turned to me and he said, son, he said, always go the extra mile because there's less traffic there. And great I would advise give advice to anyone. I think that's great advice and a great way to end the podcast. I think on that one, you can leave everyone pondering that for the, <laughs> for the foreseeable. <laughs> I really appreciate your time today, Mike. As I say, I know you're busy, and I think you, you'll offer a lot of value to the listeners on just general advice on careers, but also on the on the data center industry that most of my listeners, I'm sure, are quite actively involved in. Yeah, I'm delighted to. I, I think um, I think you're doing a great job, and um, looking forward to uh, to hearing the next podcasts. Thanks very much, Mike, and have a good day, and good luck with the haircut. And <laughs> I'll speak to you again soon. Cheers, bye bye. Cheers, Mike. Thanks. Bye.